Good evening. My man Tope is on here. Demi Tope Akande. Sound like earlier. Right? <laughs> Let me tell you, bro. There is um, a reason why I wrote this book, right? And and mm -hmm. a lot of people have always told me my story is unique. I need to write this book. So I, you know, I wrote it. Immigrant American living an American mm -hmm. life with African perspectives. And if there's anybody that I feel needs to share their story, it's this guy right here. I think that Tope has a unique story, man. And uh, just to give you all a little background on how Tope and I know each other, we met because we were college roommates. He started going to school. How old are you? 17? 16. You were 16 years old at the university. Okay. Yeah. And you get over here and you're asking everybody, do you know how to cook Nigerian food? <laughs> <laughs> you try to figure the whole thing out. I'm like, yo, nobody's going to know how to make it. <laughs> So, you know, you, you're over oh, there in the yeah. apartment trying to figure out how to make some beef and some 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 goat stew. I'm like, look, let me figure it out. text people and what message to send. You know, yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey. It's always funny because I love, like, talking to people that knew you, like, all the way back. Because you meet new people now and they're like, oh, they see, like, this. Obviously, you've been here for a while. You've assimilated and you're, like, you have this more polish and this. But then the people that know you all the way back, they really know, like, the unpolished version of you. And I think it's very, it's a very humbling thing, like just, just getting together and meeting all those people. Yeah, it's really, it really reminds you to be humble and to kind of just stay grounded and to also remember the journey so far and how, just how, damn, how, how incredible it's been. But also, how far you've come. I think it's, it's, it's fantastic, honestly. No, definitely, man. Because nowadays you meet people, they know you as a, a, a Wharton School of Business graduate. They know you yeah. as you know doing the dual program with Harvard and traveled guy experience worldview and i'm like no 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 people don't even know you wouldn't be you if you never met me you know what i mean like i made you who you are you know what's crazy about you and larry you remember larry right yeah both of you nobody takes more credit for my life than both of you not even my mother like I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like every time I see Larry, Larry's always like, "Man, I trained this boy, right?" And every time I see you, you're always like, "Man, I trained this boy, man." I'm like, "Listen, I trained myself. I don't know what you're talking about. I, 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 I trained myself." But no, you, you definitely were a big part of the story, though, for sure. No, you definitely did train yourself, man. And you know what's so crazy to me? I remember after you had graduated, you had moved to Dallas. You wanted to be an aerospace engineer. And you mm -hmm. go and you get a great job working as an engineer for an airline company. And mm -hmm. I just remember you telling me one day when we were catching up on the phone, you're like, yeah, it's a great job, but I'm going back to school. And I'm like, bro, you got like this great thing. You want to do more school? But mm -hmm. without even realizing that education has really been an important component to really to survival. Yes. And I remember just a little while ago, you wrote this article or really more like a blog right on your media yeah. account. And it was titled i hate graduations mm -hmm. and, and and you went on to explain why and you hate celebrations you hate holidays you hate birthdays and all these things and it was because of there was nobody around you to celebrate with you especially mm -hmm. the people that you you know that really know you the most that you grew up with yeah. mm -hmm. um i really wanted you to just share some of your story how you came to the united states mm -hmm. and you know the, the the africa that everybody knows not the Africa that you don't get to see on TV, yes. but the Africa that everybody knows, right? The one mm -hmm. that you came from. You know, uh, it's, it's where do I start from? 
So like I always tell people like I grew up in the Africa that that is you know like the people always say the Africa that they don't show you right I definitely grew up in the Africa that they do show you like like I grew up in a in a very very poor neighborhood and when I say poverty people always imagine the American kind which is it's poor but still spending in dollars right and uh, and it's it's but this is a different kind it's one of those poverty where like everybody I grew up with like all my friends from childhood that I've lost touch with, whenever I go home, it's incredible because none of them finished high school. I was the only one who managed to actually finish high school. Wow. I was the only one. And 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 it was it was incredible because I remember one time I was sick. This is a story I don't really tell. And I had a they said I had a liver issue with my liver. And the medicine we needed was five thousand naira, which is about ten dollars. Mm. And we had to borrow money to get to, to like actually be able to afford that medicine. And I remember when I first got my US visa to come to the US, we literally had to crowdsource like everybody, like my brother-in-law, my mom, everybody donated some money. And that's the beautiful thing about the African community though. That's, that's one thing I love about where I'm from is that yeah. it takes a village really to raise a child. So like this, the story, like growing up, so my parents got divorced when I was like nine years old and like, it was a lot of lonely nights, basically reading a book. And because my my father, he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a lot of books. And my mom used to make fun of him for it. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I, 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 I read a lot when I was growing up. And I think that was the one big difference between me and the other kids was that access to books. Mm. And was also because I had parents who valued education. So yeah. many times I would, I would get kicked out of school because we couldn't pay school fees. But then I'll go back the next day and then they'll kick me out again. And then I'll go back the next day until my mom will somehow find a way to pay. So like, it was always a journey. And then deciding I wanted to come to America. I remember when I first told my dad I wanted to be an aerospace engineer in America. This man told me like, you're dreaming too big. Like you need to like, we, wow. can't, we can't do that. We can't afford that. It was like, why don't you go to University of Lagos or something? And I was, I was like, no, that's what I wanted to do. And I that's remember- That's where you grew up, right? You grew up in Lagos. Yes, I grew up in Lagos. And I remember I would literally go every morning to the cyber cafe. So my brother, uh, he's, he's passed now. He taught me how to use how to use Yahoo Mail. So every every morning I would go to the cyber cafe. I would buy one hour, uh, and then I would just sit there looking at colleges. Like just one one hour of Wi-Fi. Yeah, one hour of internet. Uh, that's all you could afford. And there was this code we had back then where you can type something and then it would give you like an extra ten minutes or something. Uh, so like you 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 learn. Like you, you, I'm looking at all these colleges and just dreaming about coming to America, and nobody in my family had ever like left the country. Nobody in my yeah. family had ever even been on a, on an airplane, and but it was it was it was that that just that drive that you know I you you have this goal, and I remember telling my mom, I was like, we can't afford it, and I was like, what if I get scholarships and stuff? She was like, if you can make it happen. So I'll literally get up when I was making my application. I did not even pay for my OSU application until I got there. Wow. Like I literally couldn't afford the application fee. So I, I, I literally like sent an email to OSU like, yo, I can't afford this right now. But when I get there, I'll pay you. <laughs> right. I, yeah. And they were like, don't worry about it. Uh, Wow. And I literally send them, yeah, I send them my transcripts. I send them everything. I would literally get on a bus, like wake up at 6 a.m., get on a bus, get on another bus. Because the only post office was like miles away. The one that you can rely on was like miles away. So I would go mail the documents. And when I got admitted, it became just another struggle just to like, you know, like, how are we going to pay for this? And I got a scholarship from OSU where I didn't pay for everything. And 
honestly, the the thing the thing is this, the the journey was extremely hard. But the thing that's also been incredible is just the little breaks you catch along the way, right? Mm-hmm. The people, like the the admission officer at OSU, that said, sure come on through right we're still going to give you an admission even though we don't know if you can pay i got to the u.s and i only had 200 dollars and i spent half of it on my taxi from oklahoma city airport wow. still. so when I, I was literally i literally had to spend that hundred dollars for almost a month because i didn't have any money and i couldn't still pay them at the admission office so i told them like hey i'll pay you at the end of the month and i had to get the job at 20 something is this this is the summer like before the fall semester started so this was i came in january in the winter gotcha yeah so i came january 2020 2010 and it was so cold i i remember when i was doing my winter shopping there's this place called okirika in lagos where basically the clothes on the floor and you go it's called bend down select that's where we did all the shopping. So I had this jacket. I didn't know it was a woman's jacket because I don't know what women's jacket had. <laughs> uh, but I knew it was warm. And, oh, um, I remember that jacket. <laughs> that was, that, yeah, I remember that. That that thing was slimming. Uh, oh, but like, because me and my mom, we went and we, 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 we like, because we bought all this things. And I remember they packed my bag full of food stuff because my mom was like, listen, if you don't have money, this you have food. So like they packed it full of food stuff. But it was... <sighs> Honestly, just trying to tell the old story, it sometimes feels very, like, where do you even start from? But it was an incredible, it was a very, very hard thing. And, but it also teaches you that you can do hard things. Yeah. And I think that is the resilience of the African immigrants that I think when sometimes they think about what makes, like, they talk about, oh, how Nigerians are in all these higher institutions and what makes the African immigrant. I think sometimes that immigration story is like gives you that confidence that you can do hard things yeah. so that so that the next hard thing you're like okay this looks incredibly difficult but you can look in your past and say like you've done difficult things before and you know how to do difficult things and i think that was the story and even when i got to osu it was so hard working in 20 something in the winter oh my god i don't know if you remember that store yeah like the, the, the on like yeah. Store. yeah and they put me in the freaking freezer section like i was so miserable and there was no job i didn't do writing essays for people online just to get some money and just trying to like helping like all these menial jobs and like helping people that need like gardening and cook, like just all this thing because i needed some money and my entire education was literally crowdfunded and I remember one of my very didn't you like at one point like you had to go door to door and try to sell some stuff yes oh this 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 part so when i got my admission and i wanted to get money like i had to like in lagos i literally i literally had to sell insurance so like i was a 14 i was 15 i was a 15 year old boy and i literally go (laughs) i got a job from this man in church who said you're gonna you can sell insurance for me on commission i was the shyest kid in the world i was Mm. so shy and but I knew I needed money. So literally I would go wake up at 5 a.m., get on a bus to go to Lagos Island and go from office to office saying, um, excuse me, do you want to buy insurance? Just yeah. try to raise the money. And every what, time what kind of insurance was it by the way? It was it was life insurance. Imagine trying to sell life insurance to religious Africans. Right. Like that, yeah, yeah, that is that's that's what it was. It was life that feels, insurance. That feels like the scam of all scams. <laughs> it was. They're like, why would I need life insurance? Jesus got me. Uh but it was it was it was so hard every time i was like i would knock on that door it's like a part of me died because i was just that shy but uh, but like you were, you were able to make, make some money i remember my brother-in-law also contributed uh my my mom like literally borrowed money from everyone you know there was a time my mom actually got arrested because the money she got she borrowed she couldn't pay it back 
Wow. And like she literally got arrested and and we literally had to beg, like, we don't have money, but we'll pay you eventually. Oh and it, 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 it was, uh, I don't know, it, and it, it, was, it was quite a journey. But even getting to OSU, that journey, it didn't get easier. I remember, like, throughout my time at OSU, I didn't buy a single, like, new clothes. Like, Larry would literally give me all his clothes, right? Every time. And that's why that man is going to be my friend for life. Like, he literally would give me all his clothes. And when we lived together, like, sometimes Larry would be like, you would notice that I haven't been out of my room for, like, three days. I'm like, what's, what's wrong? It's because I didn't. I don't have food. And when you don't move, you can conserve energy. So you just stay in your room. You go to class. You come back. Stay upstairs. But then, I, like, anyway. But man, I, I remember there was, a, there was a time. I'll never forget this. I don't know if you even remember this. We were about to, you were going out to some party mm-hmm. and it was you, Elliot, maybe somebody else, you're all, you, you know, you're in the car and I had to stop by the ATM because I had to get cash out or something. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, it was, we were going to White Barn because you had to have cash. <laughs> so I get there, take the money out of AC, bro, you snatched the receipt. I was like, what's this dude doing? Like you just, <laughs> you just took the receipt and you looked at the balance. It was like, I don't know, like $543. <laughs> <laughs> because of uh you know money that i worked for at target mm-hmm. right and you looked at my receipt you said boy you rich <laughs> <laughs> so man give me my receipt back yo because because back then 500 that was a lot of money to me because every time i would go to walmart i did my shopping in two phases the must-haves and the thing that they, you can send back if you, your card get rejected so literally you separate your cart like that and then when you get up to the front and then they swipe your card and then they're like, sorry. They're like, don't worry, I'm prepared for this. <laughs> and then you just yeah. like separate the things that you wanted to separate. But no, it was, oh, I don't think I ever had $500. Even after we graduated, this is something I don't think, is only Daniel knows this. Like me, like I literally was in Tulsa, like selling my plasma hmm. to make to get some money. Because you know when you graduate and you don't have money and you just started a job but you haven't gotten paid yet. I didn't have a car. I had to beg them like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get to your office. Like, I want to take the job, but you have to, like, yeah. give me a car. And then my, my boss literally rented me, gave me a two-week rental. And I'll literally drive after work. I'll get off work at, like, 7 p.m., go to the plasma place, and just lay there for another, like, two, three hours for $50. Wow. And, but I needed that $50. And they said you could only donate, like, once every two weeks. So I would go to a different plasma center because mm. I can't do $50 every two weeks. But it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, it was hard because even, like, my last year in school – the government's like demolished my mom's bookstore, the only source of income that we had. Wow. So like, so literally nothing was coming in that last year. I was so broke. Like I couldn't eat. And then I had this final project. And then for graduation, my mother wanted to come and she, we had to go borrow money for her to come. I ended up, I ended school with like just so much money in debt. OSU sent my account collection. Like <laughs> it was, but I, the, the, the terrible thing about poverty is that it's so expensive mm. because the more money you owe, the more you owe, right? Because that money you owe OSU becomes $20,000 over time because it's sent to collection. That money you borrow as interest. It's just, the interest, yeah. It becomes, it, being poor is so expensive. And it was, it was, it was, it was a very, very hard journey. And honestly, when I think about my life growing up, when I think about the place where I grew up on all the people I grew up with, the fact that I'm here right now is honestly an improbable like unlikely journey like yeah like not not even on my way my wildest dreams that i think i was going to be able to do all the things i've been able to do yeah and 
but honestly, it's it speaks to the power of honestly grace and God, but also the power of like resilience and just not giving up on yourself and just investing in yourself. But yeah, yeah, and 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 even being poor in America and being poor in Africa or in, in Nigeria looks completely different, right? Like oh, so I think different. about where my dad grew up in Congo, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in a city called Loa. That's where he was born, and mm -hmm. he talks about how. The way that he grew up, the projects in the U.S. would look like a luxury, like complete yes. luxury. And even just government programs, whether mm -hmm. it's food stamps, whether it's government mm -hmm. housing, whatever it is, like so many Congolese people would be able to benefit from that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I, just a few months ago, my dad and I were having a conversation around the, the dinner table mm -hmm. and he was just saying how much he admires Nigerians specifically. Mm -hmm. Like, man, they're very resilient. This is my dad, a very resilient people. You know, you know they say Naja know they carry last. They will mm -hmm. never be last. Never be last. <laughs> so that's how my dad talks, man. He loves like the perseverance and just the strength of uh, of Nigerians in general, man. Yeah, it's because you're born of fire. Like it's it's literally the whole environment is designed for you to fail. And so succeeding requires an incredible amount of resilience. And like when I think about my brother that passed, for example, I think about like the, the the failures of the healthcare system that made him pass because he was sick. He had uh, I think he had leukemia and was sick for four years. But what actually killed him was they took him to the hospital and they gave him uh, the wrong that poorly screened blood. So they infected him with hepatitis through like the blood transfusion. And I remember them the, the struggling for the struggle for us to pay medical bills, right? Like right. we took him to one hospital when it was it was crashing and they rejected him because we didn't have the money to pay the deposit. And when I think about that amount now, it was hundred dollars. Right, hundred dollars was the difference between this this boy's life. Wow! And there, there's no government program. There's no national health insurance. There's no no, but there's no food stamps. Literally, like growing up, we literally the only food we had was the chicken that we raised in our backyard, and yeah. and then the like the pineapples where we grew and the sugar cane. And I can't tell you how many how many industrious things you can do with that combination if you're really industrious, right? Yeah. Like we made our own cassava flour. We literally there was one time we got kicked out of our house. Because we couldn't pay rent, and my dad literally carried the fridge on his back to the next place, wow. like because we couldn't afford movers. And when you think about those things, I, like we literally we, we we moved into an uncompleted building, and like we, we stayed there for like months because that was the only That's place we could afford. Yeah, and the fridge on his back, everything on his back. You get sick. One one time when I was little, I got in a motorcycle accident, and I couldn't walk for weeks. And we couldn't go to the hospital. So literally my mom would come back from work at 10 p.m. and, and take hot water and palm oil and just help me like stretch out my legs. I, I thought I wouldn't be able to walk again. But I, I remember telling her like, why don't you just take me to the clinic? She was like, don't worry, this will work. Just have faith. Right. Eventually I, I was able to get back walking. But see today my left leg still has a little bit of a limp on it. But it's just the little things that you have to just make do with. And yeah. I you know the crazy thing, I didn't know we were poor. No, I, hey, I understand that, man. Yes. I completely get that because even whenever I go and in, in, as an adult go mm -hmm. back to Africa and visit, and I'm looking at my, you know, some of my family members who don't have plumbing, mm -hmm. and, and you know, to them it's just they're living a, you know, they're living a, a, a life where it's just like, yeah, this is just this is life, you know, this is normal. You yeah. don't think about how you are, but I will say though, ever since social media has skyrocketed and people yes. can compare a lot more mm -hmm. you are starting to see a a, a a raise in the depression yes um of young people mm -hmm. uh, in, in in africa it so is that's, that's very concerning 
You know, like that's so funny that you brought that up because I remember when I was growing up, the first time I we had this uh where we our toilet was this like hole that my dad dug in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then we had like uh wood over it. So and then they had a shed. So you just go outside and that's where you shit. Yeah, that's where same you thing, yeah. Same yes. thing the yeah, yeah. And the first time I ever saw like a flush toilet was when I went to secondary school and I went to boarding school and I that's the first time I ever used like a shower and a flush toilet. And I remember being very like uh very amazed by it. And I think about if it was today, I would have seen that like because we didn't have we didn't we didn't have TV, so I didn't really watch a lot of when people talk about cartoons that they watched growing up, I'm like, oh, I don't have TV. Right. So like I didn't watch cartoons. So like I think about how on how much more unhappy I would have been now if I at Twitter back then on Instagram and I saw these people in their private chats and I saw my own pit latrine. Oh man. That yeah. could that could drive somebody to depression right there. Yes. So I mean, so what was it like when you get the acceptance letter from Southwest Airlines and boom, you got this, you got this job. What, so, what, what was that feeling like? So I was like, I was actually working for American Airlines. And I mean, uh, oh my bad. No, no, it's okay. Honestly, it felt it felt like I did it, right? It felt like this is what we worked for. You you're finally here. But you would, and you, I think I also put a lot of expectations on it. I thought my life was going to change immediately, right? Mm. But it took a while because you you owe so many people so much money, right? I remember, like, when I met Esther, and I remember we'll talk about money because, like, Esther comes from a different family than I does, than I do. And, like, just trying to explain, like, why don't you have any savings? You've been working for two years and trying to explain the fact that, first of all, I started in a deficit. That's the thing about poverty. That's why it's so hard to break out because yeah. and not only did you start in a deficit, now you have all these people back home that and need you. On yes. And you can't say no. Like, I'm, my mom cannot call me and I'll say, no, I don't have money. No, never. Or my, my sister would call, my father would call, right? So, like, you already start in such a huge deficit. Even when I was living in Dallas, I was still broke all the time. Not because I was bad with money. I didn't have any furniture in my apartment for the longest time. I literally didn't have a couch. And I remember I used to make a joke like, oh, couches for other people. May I sleep on my bed? And like my, my friends are like, really? I'm like, yeah, I don't need a couch. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I have a bed. That's all I need. But I couldn't afford a couch. I couldn't afford to pay $500 and once for a couch. But you start at such a deficit. But you, I thought my life was going to change immediately. But it took a while, honestly. But what you start to notice, though, is that your life starts to become different slowly but surely. And then the sad part, and the part that actually broke my heart is, now when I go home, mm-hmm. I feel like a stranger in that environment. Wow. Yeah, because like my mom still lives in the same house where we grew up, right? My dad still lives in that other house with a pit, pit latrine. There's a water closet on it now, but like it's been modernized, but it's still the same place. Yeah. Right? And I remember when I go home, now I have to stay in a hotel, which is kind of heartbreaking because... That's, this is where you come from, but you feel like yeah. a stranger, stranger in that line. And mm. I remember one time my mom telling me, like, I, I felt really bad about it, but she was like, no, 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 this is what I wanted for you. I wanted you to feel like this. I wanted you to leave and go wow. I don't, so that you can, because I felt really bad because I remember staying in a house and I was just not comfortable. And I remember complaining a lot and I felt bad about that, like I was being a brat. And then she was like, no, this is this is this this was my prayer for you. Mm. Like, I don't want you to still be comfortable in this environment. That's why I'm always fascinated by the idea in America where when you leave the projects, you're selling out. But that's what you want to do. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, that's, the goal that's, was to get out in the first place. Yes. I mean, in where I'm from, your people are happy for you that you got out. Like, no, they want you to leave. They don't want to be there either. They want you to go. So it's not selling out. But you, you feel like a sellout. And you live in this weird world now as an immigrant. Survivor's remorse. Yes. And as an immigrant, you're never completely American. But you're never completely African anymore because yeah. you don't live that struggle every day. So you live in this inter 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 world where it's just you're just an you, you're an immigrant everywhere. Yeah. Like in, in Africa, like I'm sure when you went back to Congo, you felt the same way. I'm sure you yeah, speak man. French, you know the language, you do you know the songs and the movies and stuff, but you see your cousins and your nephews and they live the reality and you don't quite feel one with them. And in you know, America, you know it's funny, you know it's funny you say that because. Whenever I was in Congo, when I went back for the first time, mm -hmm. I was 27. Mm -hmm. You know, first time since since we escaped. The left, yeah. And I remember feeling like I wanted to prove so much to everybody there. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like y'all. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, we're the same. Like, we speak yeah. the same languages. Like, you know, I'm, I'm speaking Lingala, which is the native tongue, and I'm going mm -hmm. out of my way to, you know, pronounce these words and doing the dances and everything. But I really. I so much wanted them to feel and to understand, like, mm -hmm. not so much that I wanted their acceptance, but I wanted them to see, like, hey, we're all in the same. Right? Mm -hmm. We're all in the same. And, you know, it's just funny hearing you say that, man, because for me, it wasn't so much survival remorse as much as it, as it was, like, hey, I want you to see, like, what's possible. Yes. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, man, that's, uh, I, I felt that for sure. Yeah, I think I think about the concept of home a lot and how that relates to being an immigrant. And I, and I, especially for someone like me where I came here alone with no family. And I remember COVID really made me think about this because everybody was like, oh, I'm going home. Yeah. And I realized home is wherever my suitcase is. Mm. And one of the reasons why, this is going to sound really cheesy, but one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to actually having a family, like getting married and having a family is because I think it will be the first time since I was like 10 years old where you actually have that real concept of home, wow. where you have a place that is not just where your suitcase is. Because I've moved a lot, Stillwater, Tulsa, Dallas, Philly, now Boston. And when COVID hit and everybody was going home, I was in Philly and it made me very sad. And people are like, oh, why can't you go back to Lagos? I was like, that, isn't, that doesn't feel like It's not home. that simple. It's not that simple, right? I, like, I can't go home. And as an immigrant, I think sometimes that it feels like that detachment from anywhere, but also attachment to a few places. And it, 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 it lends itself to this idea of just like you're this floating thing. And I'm sure being married solves that too, because you have a family now, you have a person that grounds you to somewhere. And yeah. I'm honestly really looking forward to that because I think that concept of home is a very, it's something that people take for granted. Yeah. I think something that I definitely don't. Yeah, man. So is it fair to say you're looking for a wife? Uh, I'm not looking, I, I'm, <laughs> we'll talk about this offline. <laughs> Boy, we have had these conversations a lot. Yo, let's talk about when I got to America and adjusting, actually. I think that's, that's a fascinating thing. Yo, yeah, man. Yeah, social adjustment was the, so I, racially, um, relationship wise, all that. What, what, what was that adjustment, man? Like, whenever you get here, you get to Oklahoma. You're looking around. It's like, okay, it's probably more white people that you've ever seen in your life. Yes. Uh, people interact differently. What was that? You know, the first time I realized I was black was when I got to America, right? Mm. I never thought about the concept of being black. I mean, I thought about I was a Yoruba man, right, from my tribe. But I was right. never black. I was just me. 
And then getting to America and being actually in Oklahoma and being immersed in this very, very non-racially diverse environment was, was very interesting. Like when I first, and also just the culture shock of it all. Like as I, in the first like three weeks of, of school, I literally ate through the vending machine because I didn't know the food. And it wasn't like I lived a luxurious life in Nigeria where you would have been exposed to these meals, no. And I remember going to a student union and going to the Mexican restaurant, that, that Mexican restaurant that used to be there. Yeah, I forget the name, but I know something. Yeah. And looking at the menu, and I saw rice, and I saw beans. And I remember asking the guy, can I have the rice and the beans? And the guy was like, just the rice and the beans? And I was like, yes. Yeah. So he gave me this cup of rice and cup of beans, and then I mixed it together with hot sauce, and I ate that for like a week. That's all that I would order, because it, yeah. it felt very familiar. And then pizza. The US was the first time I ever had pizza. Mm. People are amazed by that. I'm like, no, I never had pizza. And I remember my friend Daniel making fun of me because I didn't know how to eat pizza. And I was like, what were you doing? Were you doing a fork and a knife or what? what were... Yes. I, was to... I, was, I thought that, I mean, because you see it in the movies, right? They, they do fork yeah, and yeah. knife. So I was like, yeah, fork and knife, of course. But like, and Daniel was looking at me like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I was like, um, I don't know. Eating this pizza. It was, it was, it was very, it was, it was, it, that adjustment was incredible. But even the social adjustment, like, I didn't realize I was also shy until I actually really came to America. I always knew I was, I was kind of shy, but like, trying to make friends in a in a place where there's no like ready-made community for you it was so hard yeah. and like and i think i leaned pretty hard into partying for that reason mm. because i learned how to make friends in that social setting when you go out and party together yeah. so like i left osu with like some good friends but a lot of party friends right, right? and 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 that and also it was like I remember in secondary school, like I always got play in secondary school. I never had to do anything. Like yeah, in secondary school, like girls like you, you like girls. We don't really right. care. I was also a good boy, so I didn't care. Man, look, man, I, I remember watching you work. Whenever you'd be like, "Look, you you have to act like you don't care." Okay, <laughs> you're a pro. I'm like, bro, if you don't go talk to that girl, <laughs> exactly. Because back in Nigeria, like that that like intriguing, like like I I literally don't talk to girls. And right, I right. just found that fascinating. But but like I was a smart kid and I was also doing sports. So like you just gotta play. But then you come to America and then you have to learn to talk to women. And I read so many books about this. <laughs> like I did because like books are my always my escape. So I was like, I remember so <clears throat> I got a therapist. My therapist was like, you have to combine your smartness and use it to work for you in your social life. So it was like Go read books. So I was like, sure. I bought all these books about this pickup artists, uh, hmm. how to talk to women, confidence one on one. This therapist that was while while you were in college, or this was this was at OSU actually. Okay. Yeah, and because I remember like because because my first my first semester in OSU I was it was a struggle. I was very depressed. Well, so I I asked that because talking about psychology, therapists, mm -hmm. mental health, they ain't talking about that in Nigeria. Where did that come from? Like what, what made you decide like, yeah, I have to go talk to a therapist. This was the benefit of actually reading a lot. Like, you know, the, the beautiful power of stories to kind of like increase your horizon about the things that are possible. Cause you read these novels and people like they have an issue to go to a therapist. And, yeah. like, and I remember during orientation, they talked a lot about therapy and, and I've always wondered like, what do people do in therapy? They sit down and talk. So I, so that first month when I was really struggling, actually that first semester when I was really struggling, mm. I was like, maybe I should check out this therapy thing. 
And 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 I, I didn't tell anyone about it actually because I remember I didn't admit I went to therapy until I graduated college. Nobody knew. Even I mean, you're one of my very good friends. Even you didn't know I was yeah. talking to a therapist. And I, because there was still that shame about it, but I was like, let me try it. And it was extremely helpful. Like I, it helped yeah. me. I remember my therapist. One of the first things my therapist asked me to do was because I was so shy, is to say hi to two people. It was like just say hi. And I was. It took me two weeks to do it. And then he said, go to Walmart and have conversations with five people. Just say, hey, where's the cereal? Or like, ah, oh, do you know where the milk is? And I'll dress up, I'll wear my, my best clothes and go to Walmart. Remember that Walmart? Yeah. I'll take the bus to Walmart. Yeah. It took me three months. I'll literally do this that summer 2010 every day and just like go there and walk around, walk around, walk around. And it took me three months to have conversations with five people. Right. And it, it would give me exercises like that. Like when you get in the elevator, say, oh, so how's your day going? Mm-hmm. Things like that, right? Look people in the eye and say, how's your day going? Man. And, and I, it, that took me such a long time. It would teach me things like you need to like lean back a little bit, talk slower, and make eye contact. These are things that you take for granted. But when you yeah. go to this new place and you're trying to meet people and make friends, what's so important. important? Yes, and like even we're talking to women, how many times have I actually like, what should I say back to this? Why, am I, why is this person texting? Yeah. Like, <laughs> hey, I remember we were texting back for you. <laughs> Look, you know yeah. what's so interesting, bro? It's, well, you know, my two roommates, right? It was you mm-hmm. and it was Elliot. Yeah. Both of you guys were so similar, mm-hmm. but you were also both so different because he comes from like the sticks in South Carolina mm-hmm. and he was very shy. But then, mm-hmm. like, people couldn't really tell that he was shy. Yes. He didn't know how to have these conversations with people who were just way different from him. Mm-hmm. But it was so just interesting to be able to observe that paradigm. Like, here's you from Nigeria. Here's Elliot from South Carolina. So similar, so different. And um, me, I'm like, what's well, You were so good with this shit. Like, I was, talk to them. <laughs> you know? I was always so jealous of your ability to move through different spaces. Like whether it was white people or black people, like you just were very, and I think it's probably growing up in like Texas, right? And like having yeah. those people in high school. And I wonder how that was for you when you first moved here, because like I was always so jealous of your ability, but it also gave me hope of like something you can learn. Because like, you know, when you think about people, they always talk about yeah. people who are naturals. And to me, you look like a natural. You know, like, yeah. you know, some of that has to do, you know, you go to Congo, I saw like, a whole bunch of white people when I moved to South Africa mm-hmm. and it was such a negative experience in South mm-hmm. Africa that it almost painted them in a negative light. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to the U S but we're in the inner city mm-hmm. and it's very diverse, you know, where mm-hmm. we grew up in Irving. And then from there, we moved to the suburbs in Keller, Texas, where I'm like the only black person in my entire grade. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for college, I go to a country town, right? Yeah. Um, Having that experience and also always having a Congolese foundation at home, Mm -hmm. what it did for me, it always allowed me to have competence with different cultures and different different subgroups, right, within society. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I never even saw it as like assimilating or anything. I was just like, no, I just talk to these people this way, talk to Mm -hmm. these people this way. I'm still communicating the same message that I would otherwise. It's just that I have to understand how to communicate with different people. It is, it's such a valuable skill. Like, you have no idea. And, and you you probably took it for granted. But I remember I always looked at you like, man, I, I'm so jealous. Like, because you felt very comfortable in any environment. And I meanwhile, I was overthinking like crazy. Like, even simple things like text messages. Like, um, hey, how's your day going? And like, um, so like, what, <laughs> what do yeah. you say to this? Like, what do you tell this girl? But like, I mean, now 
I don't think about those things because right. now I'm, 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 I'm almost as comfortable in, in those spaces. And that comes and, just from being immersed in society. Yes. And also just like applying that resilience that brought you here to just, and that's my always my advice for like immigrants is like that you have the resilience, just apply it to a different part of your life, whether it's a social life or your career or making friends, just apply that same dexterity that you've shown and just bring it to bear. And it's, 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 it's funny because now like when people are like, I remember one of my friends, like one of my very good friends was telling me the other day, like, it was like, God, I'm so jealous about how you have all these friends. And I remember thinking like, nah, if it was 10 years ago, wow. no, no. Wow. <laughs> and that's something that's interesting, right? I, you know, I can see you being like somebody who does like public speaking and going to different groups, especially of like immigrants mm -hmm. and just kind of helping them adjust. That's, that's one thing I would actually like to do. Like I want, I like I've been thinking about. I have a few. Obviously, I want to run for public office later in yeah. my life and go back to Nigeria and run for office. But one of the things I also really want to do is just like the thing that helped me was education. I really want to like give back in that area. Like the, mm. the kids, the really smart kids in Nigeria. And I tried oh, to do it initially. I had a foundation initially, but I kind of like to like step step away from it when I got to school because I didn't have any more money. But like it's like taking kids off the streets and putting them in school and get backing them with that guarantee of an education because yeah. that's what changed my life like oh, yeah. I'm, I'm at harvard now i'm at wharton and all my friends are from this rich elite families and then they're, they're, they're nothing like me but they're also a lot like me and i think i would never have had a chance to even see if i was smart and get into these spaces if i didn't have the the, the chance to get a good education Definitely. so like so that's definitely one thing I definitely want to work on. It's also why I want to run for office. Let me start my campaign right here. Uh, yeah, it's just like nobody should have to grow up the way I did. Nobody should have to get lucky to have a chance in life, right? Like you should be able to get a good education, be able to actually, like if you work hard, be able to make it. And I think nobody's childhood should ever be that hard. It just, it's just not yeah. okay. You, you, you know what I admire so much about you, Tope? I think even whenever we were in, in college, you always talked about, how someday you want to run for office. I think mm -hmm. that was always in your mind. You're yes. like, I can't get in trouble because I'm going to run for office. Oh, yes. I got to do it this way. But you were never a political science major. No. For you, it was always engineering. Mm -hmm. And then it was, look, I got to understand business really well. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Is it because you feel like in Nigeria, you have to be really specialized and, and really powerful in one sector? You have to make money over here? Mm -hmm. like, like, give me a little so bit I of understanding. So I think my, my theory of change is that my life experiences give me a good background to like know where I come from, but also to have empathy, which is a, the, one of the biggest quality of a leader, empathy yeah. for the for the for the downtrodden. But like studying political science just teaches you how to play the political game. If you're trying to change the game, I think life experiences mean more. And yeah. the reason I, I decided to go to business school is because you're right, I want to be rich. But I'm not, I don't want to be rich just for the for the sake of it. It's for the freedom it allows you to come outside of the political system and actually build your own infrastructure. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I was telling uh, my friend the other day, like my my network goal is I want to be I want to be worth hundred million dollars by the time I'm forty, and then that's the point I would be like, okay, now it's time to go back and use that money. But you got like thirteen years ago. Yes, I got twelve. Twelve years. Twelve right. years ago. And like you can use that money now to build a political infrastructure that you can that you don't have to grow up in the political system and be corrupted by it, but can, you can come as an outsider and actually use that money to change lives and to also run for office and to build a proper campaign and then get there and have the freedom to actually make the changes because you don't owe yeah. so many favors. So that's my theory of change. And studying political science was always like I was always interested in politics, but yeah. I'm not studying that. 
but engineering and business and I'm, now I'm doing policy, which is now my own thing. Like, okay, let me actually put some structure around these ideas about your theory of change and how do you mm -hmm. develop economically. And so that's one of the reasons I went to Harvard is like, how do you actually take a country like Nigeria from third world to first world? How do you, how did China do it? How did Singapore do it? How did South Korea do it? And how yeah. is Vietnam doing it right Bye. now? Yes. And how can we do it? How can Congo turn all this trillions in minerals oh, no. and, and turn that into like a natural resource that actually helps you the middle income or high income economy? I think about this all the time, like literally every day. I remember there's a chapter in my book, actually, when I talk mm -hmm. about going back to Congo in 2018 at a 23 hour layover in Dubai in which I explored the city. And then mm -hmm. after I came back, I had another 24-hour layover in Dubai, went and explored the city some more. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, in 20 years, this country completely, UAE, mm -hmm. city, country, city, completely transformed in 20 yeah. years. That's mm -hmm. all it took to yes. one of the most technologically advanced cities on the planet. Mm -hmm. and I was like, man, this is what could be possible for Congo because yes. we have Coltan, because we yes. have Cobalt, because of all these minerals that exist, you know, $16 trillion worth of minerals. And I'm just like... We got to do something about this. And, and I'm like, while I'm there, while I'm in Congo, and I see the house that I grew up in is mm -hmm. in worse condition than it was 20 years earlier. And that's when you just, it's so, it's so hard to stay hopeful. Yes. Right? Like my, my hope was getting crushed, man. I felt so discouraged. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how do we do this, man? It's the creonism, the greed, the corruption. How do you solve this? Right. The other day, the former president, um, they, they, I guess they're trying to charge him with, you know, is it Kabila or who? Yeah, Joseph Kabila, one hundred thirty-five million dollars worth of stuff that he, or money that he embezzled. And I see the headline, and I'm like, oh, y'all think it was only one hundred thirty-five million? He, pro he probably leaked that himself. <laughs> but man, that's the type of stuff that I'm talking about. And then you come over here, and yeah, America has its problems, yes. it has its troubles, but. If they knew the perspective, right? If they mm -hmm. knew just how much worse off it could be, you know, at yes. least you have social programs, mm -hmm. at least you have checks and balances, mm -hmm. right? Which is probably, in my opinion, the biggest thing that that Congo's missing, right? Yes. Three different branches. Institutions. institutions. Yeah, institutions. different institutions. That's the the thing about being an immigrant that helps you appreciate America so much more. Yeah. Like I I genuinely love this country. Like it's because it's given me so much and so much opportunities and so much a chance to actually find out what I'm really made of. Because when you're in that environment back home, you can't really find out because so many things working against you. And like the, the idea of going back home is very important. And I think for everybody, I don't I'll never tell people like go back home. I think make your own plan, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you want to also make sure you secure a future for your family. But if you really want to do it, then go back home and give back. And like my you know what, what I have a theory and you can you can challenge me on this. Okay. I feel like black people all over the world would never really get the respect we deserve until Africa becomes a place like China, a place where that's what we don't people always talk about when people talk about racism sometimes, what they forget is that we also the reason what makes racism so rife is our lack of economic power. Yeah. Because you don't have to like Chinese people, but by God, you're gonna respect them now. Yeah. Right. Because it's the same thing with like, with, like with, with with Jewish people. You don't have to like them, but you've got to respect them. Like so, like I think like sometimes black people right now, our, our struggle for equality has always been asking favors of our oppressors, right? But if countries like Nigeria and Congo, a place for people to actually go, a place for us yeah. to go, a place for us to look up to, 
then it won't be it won't be a favor we're asking. It will be actually a negotiation now. Like, yeah, we're gonna live together or what? Otherwise, you are you are you are preaching to the choir, right? Especially, specifically in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Patrice mm -hmm. Lumumba. Mm -hmm. Patrice Lumumba, in my opinion, is one of the greatest black leaders like in the mm -hmm. history of the world, and nobody was, knows his name in the U.S. He was assassinated. Assassinated, and and I want to say in 2006, maybe 2001, Belgium mm -hmm. formally apologized yes, yeah. for the role that they played in assassinating Patrice Lumumba. Just, yeah. But it wasn't just Belgium. The U.S. plotted, right? Like, mm -hmm. they needed to get to these minerals and these resources. Yeah. And then uh, Mobutu Seseko becomes the president, changes mm -hmm. the country's name to Zaire. Mm -hmm. And during that time, especially in the 1970s, it was a thriving country. Mm -hmm. The economy was thriving. George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali, the rumble in the jungle, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the most watched sports program of all time. Like all these things are happening in Congo and the mm -hmm. people felt pride. You know, they're wearing these, they're on, they have their own ties, right? Their mm -hmm. own suits. Right? There was a lot of national pride. And then because Mobutu Seseko was in office for so long, it got to his head. Of course. And it went from this thing <laughs> that was on this trajectory started crashing down man kabila comes in takes over and of course 20 years of war will ruin your country and that's when like, i had to escape right 20 years of but war. then 20 years can also transform like china lifted 800 million people out of poverty since the 1970s like since, since 1985 that is an incredible amount of people like yeah. literally ta taiwan transformed in in 20 years south korea yeah. Singapore, literally from 1965, when they got their independence, to 1985, Lee Kuan Yew transformed this country, yeah. right? And so, like, as hopeless as it feels right now, it's, it's only, possible. It's so possible. 20 years can take Congo, Nigeria, Ghana, from low-income countries to high-middle-income countries. And another you, know, you know who identifies that? Like, who recognizes that right now? I think China does. China? Like, China is right now investing in land they are they're giving out loans in different mm -hmm. countries in africa and whenever the government can't pay them back they're saying oh don't worry just let us just let us own this part right yes so we're just taking it and it's a new form of colonialism uh, i think china is a new it's a, it's a new form of imperialism at least oh yeah and but the the, the thing is this is this is why i tell people if you think america was bad wait till china is a, is a world power mm. like the the checks and balances that keep america in check the noises you can make in the media and the, the the elections that they have to be afraid of here where they can they can do bad but not too bad wait till china is the one in charge and then we'll, you really see <laughs> what I'm life on the other side looks like and i just hope we don't we don't replace another like a, one colonialism with another right like if yeah. you go to if you go to ethiopia right now all their trains or like it's all chinese letters now and like what are we doing man if Shit is if you if you go to if you go to I was talking to a friend of mine who spent some mm -hmm. time in China and he was saying about how attractive to make Africa look on TV, like they're showing all these commercials. They're like, come visit it's Africa. Like, they they want they, people to move. Yeah. yeah, they want people to actually go there, and they're setting up factories in Ghana, right? Mm -hmm. They're setting up factories in Nigeria. They're going yes. to South Africa, Taiwan, uh, mm -hmm. not Taiwan. Where where was I thinking? Uh, East African country. What am I thinking? Yeah. Yeah, especially in Kenya, man. There's yeah. so much that they're doing. And that type of perception that people that the Chinese people have mm -hmm. is not the same perception that you have in the U.S., especially no. whenever you come here, bro. Yes. Um, I don't know if this was the same experience for you, but they warned us. They said, hey, make sure you watch out for those black Americans. You know, the yes. black Americans, they tend to be a little, 
you know, they tend to be a little crazy. And then I become mm -hmm. friends with them. And I'm like, yo, these are some of the nicest, most generous people that I know. They let anybody come into the neighborhood and set up business over there. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, you know the crazy thing? I you about it. One of the first advices I was given was don't date a black American girl. Really? Oh, they're so crazy. Oh, this, oh, that. And as a new immigrant, this is why there's this tension between the African and African-American community. As, as a new immigrant, I was like, oh, really? But then you become friends with like African-Americans and you're like, this is not true. Right. But the perception is so rife. But even on the other side, there's also the perception about Africans that's also so rife. And I'm like, yo, like, and, and then you start becoming like racially aware. Yeah. You realize that cop doesn't care about your accents. Like that black lady, that white lady doesn't care that your name is like Tenitope and not like not an African-American name. Like, but you have this, this interesting divide too. And it's like, it's because we're all fighting for scraps. Oh my gosh. Yes, bro. Like, so chapter, either chapter two or chapter three of my book, it's mm -hmm. called uh, African-American or American-African. Mm -hmm. That's the title of the chapter. And I talk about how um, I, I had a friend, okay? His name was Malek. He was from Sudan. Mm -hmm. And I remember because of the experience that we had in South Africa and the people not liking us because we weren't South African and then coming over here and thinking that people weren't going to like us because we were African, mm -hmm. we identified ourselves with French people. Because we spoke French, we just said, oh, no, we're from France. And that's what my siblings and I would tell everybody. We're from France. We're from France. What kind of way to live is that, right? Like you're, you're stripping a whole part of your identity. Yes. And my friend from Sudan, I remember being like, no, he's the African. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm the French one. You know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and it was like that for a couple of years, right? From like age seven to like 11. And, 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 and it's this sense of, you know, feeling like, no, they look at me as like, you know, I'm the guy with, you know, I'm starving and I have, you know, flies in my eye. Whereas the Africans are looking at the African-Americans like, oh, no, y'all too violent. Y'all are killing yes. each other. Y'all got all this gang stuff happening. And I'm like, yo, we are being brainwashed by both sides. By the same media, the same yeah. fucking media. I remember like when I first got here, I, I tried so hard to change my accent because I just wanted, I didn't want to be that African talking African boy. And like, and it led to a lot of embarrassing moments because yeah. like you're trying to pronounce these words. And I eventually like, when people tell me they're like, I don't have an American accent. I also don't really have an Nigerian accent. I'm giving up my accent. This is, this is <laughs> my accent. But like, because you Africa wasn't cool back then the way it is now. Oh, Afrobeats and Butterboy and Whiskey. It wasn't. Black Panther, Wakanda. I had a very did you miss the did you did you miss the African booty scratcher age? I think I came just after that. Yeah, like, you, you missed it. Because hey, growing up in Texas around that time, you heard it all the time. African booty scratcher, man. I'm like, bruh. There's yeah. so much animosity between both communities, which makes no sense because, like, even when I got into my MBA program, I have a lot of my African American friends saying, like, uh oh, you know, the only reason you got in is because you're African, right? If you're African American, I'm like, Ain't that I don't understand where that feeling comes from because the, instead of expanding the pie, we're fight, fighting for this tiny slice that they've left for us, right? So wow. we feel like whatever this African gets means me as an African American who's, I cannot have who, any. whose ancestors fought for civil rights can't have any. And the Africans are feeling like, well, we're also colonized. Like, and it's like, instead of like using our own miseries to fight against each other, it should actually bind us, right? Yeah. And it should bind us in expanding that pie. Which is why I was like, if Nigeria was a place where people can go back to, there'll be less Nigerians in America. Mm. We'll be building wealth in our own country. Do you think I want to be here? No, I want to go back to Lagos. Like, I love being in Lagos, but can I, I can only stay for two weeks because that's it. Yeah. Like I want to go back home. I want to. I want my kids to grow up next to their grandmother. 
but I can't go back home. And that's the other part of the immigrant story is like, you're an immigrant sometimes not by choice. Mm-hmm. You're stuck here because this is the only place that you have a chance to build wealth and to actually make a life for yourself because mm-hmm. home is not hospitable. Home is not home. So you can't go back anywhere. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a couple of cousins who won the uh, the educational lottery, and they came over here and they lived with us, and they talk about how they can't ever see themselves returning. You know, they, yes. they can never go back, and you know it's sad that it has to be like that. It's true. I've, the things people will do to stay here is incredible, but it's because what am I? What are you gonna go back to? If I if this, if I go went, go back to Nigeria today, what am I gonna do there? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still going to be one of the lucky few, but like the potential that you have is going to be so much reduced. And I, and like as an immigrant here, sometimes you feel stuck here. Yeah, man. Look, even, even college graduates. So people who graduate college in mm-hmm. Congo, mm-hmm. it's like north of 80 percent of them still are unemployed even mm-hmm. after they get their, their, their college degrees. Where's the opportunity in that? That's when people tell you, go back to your country. I'm like, I want to. You yeah. Know, I don't want to. But I can't. So we're gonna be here together. We're gonna figure this shit out. Hey, tell me how we fix this, bro. Hey, give, give us the plan, bro. Lay it out, my guy. You running for this, though. What are we doing? Uh, so listen, I'm gonna run for president someday of Nigeria. And and honestly, the the the, the campaign is simple. It's 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 a Nigeria that works. Bitcoin. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Our problems are actually more basic than that. Our problems, let's let's leave Bitcoin for now. Our problems are more basic. Like it's in Nigeria that works. It's in Nigeria where you turn on the switch and electricity comes on and you call 911 and the police shows up and you actually go to the hospital and you get treatment, good, affordable treatment. It's in Nigeria where your kids can go to school and you can drive and get home without being robbed. Where you're not the only, even when you make some money, you're not the only successful people on your street. Where your family and your family members have access to like, like to education and to wealth, where you can actually wake up and say, this is what I want to do today. And the environment is not designed to kill you and to kill your dreams. It's in Nigeria where you can actually dream. It's in Nigeria where the basic things work. Let's even start with the basics. Where somebody can 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 hurt you and can go to court and you can actually get redressed. Where the law is not designed for the for, to oppress you and to safeguard the few. It's in Nigeria where things work. It's in Nigeria then, because Nigerians are so entrepreneurial. They're so, it's in Nigeria where we're not known for scams and we can actually turn our entrepreneurial spirit to, to amazing things. It's in Nigeria where like, we can actually embrace Bitcoin, not as a survival tool, but as a tool of innovation, as a tool, but crypto is not a means to skirt our government that's trying to kill us. It's a means to actually build wealth. Yeah. Nigeria, where, where technology is actually deployed in ways where we can actually build a, a real society, not Wakanda. Fuck Wakanda. Like, do you know what bothered me the most about Wakanda? What's that? Black Panther. Did you notice how the elite had all this technology, but still on the streets were still goats and cows and yeah. same poverty? But it was very reflective of really all 53 countries in Africa. Yes. So when you talk about Congo, I think about Wakanda because they have this, what's the name of that mineral? Yeah, uh, Kotan. Like, yes. And in Black Panther, they have that, what's what's that thing called? Uh, Vibranium. Vibranium. Yes. And they had all this money, they had this thing, but it was only the Black Panther and his family that had all this tech. And the people on the streets, their lives were not affected by it. That's literally, and people see this and they see this dreamland. What I saw was dystopia. Mm. What I saw was the reality in Africa. And that's the reality we're trying to change. And I think it's you, people like you and I, and people back home. And I think we, yeah. we can't give up. We just gotta, 
as the the, the 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 privilege we have as immigrants is we've had this opportunity now to gain all this knowledge and to gain this knowledge. Yeah. And you'll be such a such a such a beast opportunity if we don't actually use some of that privilege in whatever capacity. Not everybody can run for office, but yeah. to go back and give back and really actually like and you know what? Oftentimes it takes people who are not running for office to actually make a change. Exactly. So, it takes yeah, people yeah. from the outside making that pressure. You know, you're, you're going to be like the, the uh, commission of the NFL someday. Maybe <laughs> through sports can actually offer more opportunity for people. You know, you can. We, That's we, the plan. We, yeah. You know, and when you become commissioner, I want some you know, tickets. You know? <laughs> whenever, whenever NFL Africa takes off. That's and, actually, I'm, and I'm running yeah. it as executive director or whatever. Trust me, hey, I, I got a seat for you every game, my guy. Oh, but I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that. I tell you what, man. If if there was a way to buy stock in Tope Akande, bro, I would buy the stock right now, man. I, oh, I thank you, that, bro. You're, Maybe I should issue a token. You know, I, I like <laughs> yeah, man, <laughs> a, a token on, on a crypto token. No, <laughs> I really appreciate. I feel the same way. I always tell people, like, you know, you have some people that you meet that you know they're just gonna be successful. You're one of those people. I think, like, like I one of you. my favorite things about you is not just even like your achievements, is your character. Like, I've seen you in all different kinds of environments. Hmm. And, and I, <laughs> we don't talk about. <laughs> but I think, like, the basic thing that I've always been able to do is like trust in your character, even if some actions don't really reflect that. I think fundamentally, the person that you are has always been stable. And I think, I think your parents did a fantastic job. Like. And the church and the people around you, and that's one thing I'm trying to do for myself now. Is like your character is that thing that goes before you, but also stays after you're gone. Mm. And trying to build that character is something that I'm very, very like I'm working hard on. I'm I'm back in therapy. I'm working on being a better man and reflecting on some of the some of the mis- some of the things you did as a young man, some of the mistakes you might have made, but also how do you make sure as an as a as a grown man now. You 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 don't leave that you don't you you don't repeat those mistakes, but you're also yeah. living like you're a man of integrity. This is that's the most important thing. So yeah, yeah. but yeah, I appreciate that. too. Thanks, man. Look, we've been on here for an hour. Yes. Um, thanks for your time, man. I know it's the day before Thanksgiving, and we we over here yes. chopping it up. But no, I appreciate um, it. And when I come to Dallas, I'm gonna hit you up. Yeah, definitely, man. I tell you what, bro, you deserve to be celebrated. And uh, you know, right now with you're getting to learn from some of the best consulting minds mm-hmm. in the world, right? And I tell you what, man, um, we're we, we going to make sure we get that right wife for you. That's, that's <laughs> you know what? Hey, listen, I, hit me up. <laughs> exactly, brother. I hey, say hi to your you wife, man. She's amazing, too. So I will. Good evening.